Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Thanks so much, Darlene. Well, the Lakers are one win away from another NBA title, and this is Catch and Shoot 2.0. My name's Aaron Berlin. My co-host is Otto Strong. Coming up on today's show, we will talk about the Lakers and their impressive Game 4 win over the Miami Heat, what it means for them as they trek towards another title, and we'll also have an interview with Pete Croato. He is the author of the upcoming book, From Hang Time to Prime Time, which will be released on December 1st. It focuses on a 15-year run in the NBA from 1975 to 1989, when it went from being an afterthought in the sports world to a cultural and business behemoth. But before we get to Pete, Otto, I have to welcome you in. And I'm going to start this off by saying this. The finals floor still doesn't look right with the block logo. I need finals in cursive writing with the trophy in it, and then it'll feel right, right? I got, yeah, I got to say, I miss the gold trophy. I miss, I miss saying that. I mean, that's, that's become a staple over the years. And for folks who've been around the NBA for a while, like suffers like myself, like, just likes, like the, uh, likes seeing that. But uh, hey, somebody yep, somebody said Lakers, Lakers in five. We looked, we looked at that guy's looking pretty good. And that who's that guy? Hello. <laughs> you, you know, there was a split second towards the end of the third quarter and early in the fourth where I thought maybe the Heat were going to be able to pull this off. But I was so impressed defensively with the way the Lakers played throughout the course of this basketball game. I, I mean, LeBron really struggled in that first quarter and. You know, he kind of started to get things going in the second. But defensively, I just thought the Lakers were excellent throughout the course of this game. No, they definitely adjusted, uh, put, the, put the clamps down on, on Jimmy Butler, really didn't uh, allow him to get to the rim or get any comfort, really, is what it looked like. That plus probably it looked like he kind of maybe took his foot off the gas and just uh, eased up. I'm not exactly sure why there, but uh, how impressed were you with the, with the subs, with the job, with the reserves? You know, I was, the entire game, I was just thinking, you know, Alex Caruso makes a couple big plays. My guy, Markeith Morris, hits a couple big threes, also has a couple big defensive stops. And, you know, they even start the second half with Markeith in the starting five. And that was the second where you realize that Frank Vogel was kind of giving a nod to him a little bit over um, Dwight Howard. But I thought that was where the separation was in this game. And that was kind of the weird thing about that is, you come in thinking about this series of this is LeBron and AD versus Jimmy Butler and the rest of his Heat team, right? 
And it ended up being that the reserves, Alex Caruso, Markeith Morris, Kuzma, Rondo, they all had such a big role in this basketball game that it, not that it tilts any of the spotlight away from AD or LeBron, because that would be ridiculous because despite LeBron's struggles in the first half, he was excellent in the second half of this basketball game. Same with AD, but it just shows that they are more than just those two guys. Oh, absolutely. Contavious Caldwell Pope, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the three pointer in and, and got a, another deuce down. Uh, and then Rondo, you know, uh, was not a factor in, in scoring, but he, uh, as we see, he does so much. And he, but he did get that bucket late uh, and then kicked it out to, uh, to AD for the three that pretty much sealed the deal. So those guys, I mean, it just, it just shows when they are on, there's really no one that can compete, compete with the Lakers. What did you think about the Heat abandoning their zone? That, that really tripped up the Lakers a little bit in that first half. It, it, it did. I mean, they would, look, they were feasting uh, on that through the first couple of games. They would just, you know, AD and LeBron would just let, uh, slip you know, behind the defenders on the baseline and just basically, you know, get whatever they wanted. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was, a, it was more of they weren't ready for it or they just <laughs> didn't exactly know how to react to it. But, uh, yeah, they, they definitely did struggle there. Did you have any problem – with the way so, so Jimmy Butler's been excellent and you know he was the main reason they won game three and it almost seemed like during the stretch down in game four that he was deferring far too often you know inside five minutes in the fourth quarter I think they were within five but it kind of like hung around that like five six seven range where it never they never really got much closer than that I think they may have pulled it to within four at one point but it seemed like as they were coming down and they had real opportunities to either close the gap to a single possession. Other guys were taking big shots. Like Jay Crowder hits a big three. Tyler Hero hits a couple shots. But most of those are on either passes where Butler defers or, you know, he gets the assist out of it. Were you disappointed? And for full disclosure, I was very disappointed that Butler didn't take more command of the offense in the closing minutes of this game for the Heat. But did, did you see a missed opportunity there for Jimmy to really take control of this game late? Oh, definitely. I mean, look, if he could have pushed it, the series to 2-2, then, it, you know, it obviously changes the narrative completely. But, you know, the thing is, I think the Lakers defense just, I mean, they, I think they just knew what was on the line. They knew that getting, that taking these guys up 3-1 was essentially, you know, um, I don't say, basically going to lock the series up for them. So I think they were just going to make it as difficult as they could for him. I, I still you know, I'd love to hear some of the post-game interviews as, as to why he kind of retired a little bit or didn't kind of have that same level of intensity that he had earlier. Um, that, that'd be my big question. Yeah, 34% from three, 42% from the floor is what the Lakers held the heat to. Bam Adebayo, you, you know, they, they reference this a little bit in the telecast, but, but it is true. This Heat team is night and day when he's on the court and when he's off the court, and it's almost like they're playing with an entirely different unit. Were you impressed with how he was able to kind of gut out this performance a little bit? Oh, of course. I mean, he, I mean he's uh, was the, the, the engine through earlier in the earlier um, you know, playoff rounds. Um, it looked uh, – they, they, I mean, I'll be the first one to say when, when he was, when he was down, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be a sweep. There's no way there. Yeah. It was, I mean, it, it, they were not only without Adebayo, but they were also without Dragic. Right. You know, right. Dragic is a huge part of that offense. Right. Right. Now, so do you like them I mean, as a, as a, as a unit, do you like them, how they're playing better with him or without him? 
Oh, definitely with him. The, the, he opens up so many more options for them, especially when he can bring the basketball off the court too. That that opens up just so many things offensively for them. And it takes the load off Jimmy Butler. You know, we've talked about this a few times on this show. Goran Dragic, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler, like, like that's a formative trio of basketball players, you know? When it's just Jimmy and everybody else, like that's a lot of weight on his shoulders and it gives him someone to defer to. And not that you ever take possessions off in a finals game, but it lets you breathe a little bit more than I think he was able to in games two and three. And so it was good to have him back out there. And it shows the different dynamic. You know, the Lakers never really got fully comfortable in this basketball game. They won it, but I wouldn't say they ever got really comfortable in it. I think the last couple of minutes, you know, they, they started to push that lead a little bit. They started to uh, you know, flex a little bit on, on defense. It felt like they were they were sniffing a ring at that point. Uh, and even though they obviously have one more win to get, it just felt like they they, they could see the light at the end of the tunnel here uh, and just decided we're, we're, we're going to put the hammer down on these guys. Do the Heat have a chance to take game five and make this a little interesting? Or do you think the Lakers, like you said, you know, they're smelling that ring and they're ready to close this out and go home? Well, for, you know, for an older team, I mean, I think the other thing in the Lakers advantage is that they have that extra day of rest. Uh, you know, I mean, LeBron is an AD. I mean, I, I, have, I wasn't keeping track of how many times they hit the deck, but those guys seem like they're spending as much time on their backs as they are, you know, running up and down the court. And, uh, I mean, can't lose sight of the fact that LeBron has been doing this for 17 seasons. <laughs> Um, I mean, he's basically been in, in the league as long as Tyler has been alive. Almost. <laughs> and, think, about, uh, th- think about this. Two years ago, Tyler Hero was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy stuff. But Dude uh, was throwing think, up three-point shots for his high school team, trying to win a state title. Now he's trying to win an NBA title. <laughs> that, that, is, that is crazy. That is crazy. It's going to be, I mean, regardless of what happens when he goes home, it's gonna be, he's going to be hometown hero. But, um, but, I mean, I think that extra 24 hours of rest is going to be huge. Uh, I think it'll allow the, you know, the Lakers to get a little bit more, uh, aside from rest, break down some tape and see where they can course correct on a few things. And on the other side, it should, it should give Miami, you know, a, a, a little bit of time from the sting of this one and just, you know, have, like Eric says, just, you know, hey, we got to win one game. That's all we got to do. Absolutely. Take the game that's in front of you and try and go from there. Uh, But I'm still saying that the Lakers will get this in six. I think the Heat will come out. They'll take game five. They'll make it a little interesting, but ultimately this one ends after six. Otto, you ready to welcome in our guest? Go for it. All right. It's Pete Crow Otto, and he is the author of the latest book, From Hang Time to Prime Time. Let's get to Pete. Pete Croato is the author of the upcoming book, From Hang Time to Prime Time, which will be released on December 1st. Pete, thanks so much for taking the time and joining Otto and I. My pleasure. So I have to ask you, when you're putting together as comprehensive of a book as this, and you know, before we started recording, you said, this book almost killed me. Just how much work was put into this? Oh, man. It, it's, it, was, it was, a, I mean, it was a lot. And you're talking... 315 interviews, um, uh, dozens upon dozens of books read that you can see on the on my bookshelf back here, and just a constant outreach and constant lobbying. So it, it's again, you you have I had about I had less than two years. No, excuse me, I had about 16 months to report and write uh, a 300 and I guess 50 page book, and that's 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 a pretty big meatball. Um, and as a first time author, especially. 
you, for me, it was very challenging to put everything together and work, work as fast as I could. But I, I love this book so much. And I love the project so much. And I love this history so much that it really was a, it really was a, a pleasure, even though it was, it was a lot of work to, to put it together. But I'm thrilled that it's out or it will be out soon. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy now. <laughs> A lot of people say that they, before writing a book, I have something to say, something on my mind. What, what is that kernel that you had on your mind that you felt that you had to express it through this book? My, that's a, that's a great question. Um, my, the thought was I had, I have read so many books. I'm sure you guys have as well about the, whether with any book that explores the MBA's current history or, or examines a, a current modern day super, superstar, pardon me like a LeBron James or even a Michael Jordan, there's always something in these books. And a lot of these books are, are great, but there's always something in these books about back in the day, the NBA was the, the finals were on tape delay or they, it, had a, it had a drug problem or it's all these, you hear all these stories and all of these um, uh, issues about the NBA before let's say 84, before 1990. And I was curious as to what, what the league was, how the NBA became the NBA. The NBA of Michael Jordan and um, uh, the NBA of Michael Jordan and the NBA of LeBron James. How did we get to that point? How how did we get from a, a from a from an NBA that was uh, you know games on tape delay that was discussed as being a third tier sport? How did we get to this to the to the sport being the way it is today? So that's what I wanted to express. How did the how did the NBA become the NBA that it is today? And that's what this book I really think um, puts into perspective. So, so let's start with a big moment in the NBA, and it's something that I think this book touches on: the ABA and NBA merger. Which mm-hmm. uh, I'm guessing you spent a lot of time kind of researching this and going through. What was that like for the league? League, and then also how was that portrayed when that was going when that was happening? Well, I think with with the with the ABA and the NBA merger did was that it brought in this electrifying talent into the NBA, um, folks like Julius Irving, George Gervin, etc. Um, but in terms of the difficulty of it, it was more like a re- it was more like relief um, because you have to remember the ABA and the NBA were at each other's throats for for almost ten years. So to finally get these two sides to come to the table and work out this agreement, to work this out was huge. Because again, the, M- the NBA and the ABA, when they were competing with each other, the ABA was drafting all the best talent, the younger talent that didn't, that didn't want to wait four years to graduate and play in the NBA. And they were also giving them more money. So that was causing stars to cross over to the ABA, uh, NBA stars to cross over to the ABA and play. So. The fact that, the, that, that there was this merger was a huge, huge relief, I think, for the NBA more than anything else. I heard about the, you know, the 315 interviews, which is just mind-boggling. And <laughs> um, <laughs> it must have given your editor both, both uh, joy and pain in, in equal <laughs> measure. <laughs> but uh, if, you could, if you could, what would be the kind of the key interview that you thought best kind of, all right, I got this now. The, the interview or the get that you feel put the book over the top? If you um, hmm. What put, that put the book over the top. It's funny. It, it, I'm going to mention somebody. You guys are not going to know who he is, but it it's kind of just shows you that the the key interview is not usually is usually not the best known source. So there's a there's an executive uh, at Nike, a former executive named, named Mark Tomashow, who um, was around for all the Jordan years. Was around for the Bo. You know, big big. He was a big 
big wheel at the cracker factory, so to speak. So he was, so he, so I reached out to him through LinkedIn. We talked and he said, yeah, you know, I'll talk to you for the book and let me, I'll see who else I can get for you. You know, I have a pretty good batting average here. I'll, I'll see, you know, I know some guys, let's see who I can talk, who I can, who I can get you to, uh, talk, oh, I can get to talk to you. So after that, thanks to Mark, I talked to uh, George Gervin. Uh, Mark directed me to Phil Knight, uh, the, the Nike co-founder. Um, Tinker Hatfield, who was a key, um, who was Michael Jordan's uh, designer for the Michael for the Air Jordans after Air, from Air Jordan Three on. So Mark was really, I guess the the when I when I got him when he was when he agreed to talk to me and we hit it off as source and subject. I'm sorry, as interviewer and subject that's when things really opened up yeah. and it's kind of a um it, it's kind of a big thing to me um it kind of shows you just the the, the the value of digging and digging and digging and just calling everybody you possibly can so he was basically the facilitator or the lebron if you will <laughs> going the magic johnson yeah he <laughs> magic was, johnson yes of course he was the setup guy yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and every book needs i think every book every good story needs someone like that who's going to say Okay, you're good, and let me let me get let me let you into the club, yep. and and you you know and I'll, and I'll introduce you to some of the key folks there. So that That's was great. definitely Mark. That's great backstory. Yeah. Hey, what was the workflow for this book like? I mean, 300 interviews, you said 16 months. Where did you start, and then kind of how how did this whole process unfold? Chaotically, um, is probably the best best way to put it. No, it was just. Um, Looking back, it's hard. It's hard to figure out. It's sort of. It's sort of like figuring out how, like, how you met your wife, or how you, or how you, where you are in your life. It's just. It just kind of just happens, and you wake up and like, how did this happen? But I will say this: it it just started with just going down, looking through old Xander Hollander um, handbooks, which used to come out every year, the complete handbooks of basketball. Going through rosters, calling up people, and then you get a name from you. You talk to somebody, they give you a name. You read a book, you read all these books, and you come up with a name. You go through old rosters. You you just call and call and call, and eventually, you you build your story. And then you you go through your notes after nine, ten months. You think, okay, I'm out of I'm running out of time here. I have to put something together. And really, what takes it's a it's a mixture of just straight up reporting, just grueling reporting, and then instinct of knowing when to start, when to start, when to start the writing. So it's really just, you live the book for so long, you live the reporting, and then eventually the voice in your head says, okay, we have to start writing. And that's kind of, that's, it's, it's like any, it's like any story that you write. Um, I've written a ton of stories over the years. There's a point where you say, okay, I reached up, I reached my limit. I have to start reporting. And I was, I was very lucky to be at a point where I could where I could start writing, and that was after about 10, 11 months. What's the best story anecdote part that didn't make the book? Ooh, there are so many. I mean, the one that the one that comes to mind is after the '84 Finals, where where uh, Boston beats LA. Um, Ted Shaker, who is the executive producer of the NBA and CBS, is hanging at a bar in. Um, in, in I guess somewhere in Boston, you know, just sort of celebrating the end of the series and a job well done because these seven game series for a TV crew are just are just excruciating. So they're celebrating, and in walks in Larry Bird, and he's wearing like a big cowboy hat. He's and it's Larry Bird. I mean, this is the apex of his fame, just walking into a to a uh, to a Boston bar, just like you or I would. Yeah. So 
Ted Shaker sees Larry Bird, who's just had this incredible series, who, who has just orchestrated this amazing win over a great Lakers team that is now at the forefront of the NBA's coverage. It's the first Bird Magic series, seven-game series. Walks up to Larry Bird and says, do you know what you just did? Um, so that's one story that, that really sticks out is just how, and it kind of just shows you how the NBA was creating history in the moment. You know, there was just no, there was no blueprint for this. It was just whatever happened, you rode the wave and you took advantage of it. Speaking of Larry Bird, we, we all know the impact he had on the league, but what were some of the surprising things that when you're going through, you were doing your research, you're doing these interviews that you learned about him? About Larry? Hmm. Well, I think everyone, I think, I think everyone knows that he was, he was a jokester, but I think what's interesting about Larry Bird is how, and um, Dick Helm, who's a longtime NBA assistant coach mentioned this in, in, in our interviews. He said, Larry Bird was one of the first people that I saw practice who made the, who made, who turned the three point shot into part of his pregame practice. So Larry Bird would be taking like, would be taking free throws, like going out of bounds or off the dribble. He wasn't just, getting a ball from a teammate, shooting it, and going to the next spot. He was practicing three-point shooting as if it were a game situation. And Reggie Miller did the same thing. So that, to me, was really interesting about Larry Bird and his work ethic and just how he viewed the three-point shot. Hmm. I, I guess we see, uh, we see uh, some of that with Steph Curry in terms of how he takes his, his shots from the tunnel and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you know, I'm sure you've been watching you know, what's been going on inside the bubble on the finals, what are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, not necessarily the finals specifically, but anything bubble related or, or the game is as, as it is today. Well, I mean, I think you, you see all these, this is gonna sound almost, um, almost comical, but I, I think what's amazing to me is the NBA's, um, the NBA's um, demonstrations, the, the players you know, um, stri striking for a game. Um, the, the statements on the back of their jerseys. It, it's, I, I love seeing that. And to me, it goes back to what the NBA did so well in the 1980s, which was marketing mm -hmm. the players as individuals. And I think one reason why you're seeing such a, um, I, I think you're going to, I mean, you're going to have backlash about this, but I think one reason why the NBA was able to do that was because they've had all of this goodwill or, all, or, or pardon me, not goodwill, but this kind of practice of putting the players first, letting the players have their say, expressing themselves, goes all the way back to the 1980s. Um, even, even with something as silly as the NBA, it's fantastic ads, where you, you know, or, um, or, or these NBA videos that you saw. The players have always been at the front and center of the NBA, whether, uh, of, of the NBA, whether it's delivering, delivering pardon me, um, their marketing, whether it's delivered it, delivering um, PSAs, because that's who's plays the game. That's who the that's who the fans respond to. So, what you know, David Stern always said that it's not what you what is that how what you think about the players or see about the players. It's how you feel about the players. Mm. And he laid, and David Stern, the commissioner, the longtime commissioner of the NBA, laid the groundwork for that. And that is what you and what you're seeing now with. The with the, the protests and the players speaking out, that is, I think, a direct result of what David Stern did back in the 1980s. Why do you think the league and players have always had that kind of connection? I mean, you think as far back to players like, or as early as now, like LeBron, Michael, 
Larry, Shaq, they're all such big personalities. And it's like, because you mentioned the league has embraced them since they were in the league. What makes the NBA so unique in that process as opposed to other leagues? You know, like you look at the NFL and Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady and they're great, but we don't have that same kind of connection with those players that we do like the NBA players do. Well, this is going to sound simplistic, but it comes down to the fact that we can see them. You know, Patrick Mahomes is, is you only see him maybe a third of the game, if you're lucky. Um, a player like J.J. Watt, uh, you know, he's sheathed in padding and a helmet, and he's, on the, he's, on, he's, only, on the, he's only on the field for half, half the plays, quarter of the plays. The NBA players are, they are basically playing in their underwear. And we and they and we can see their face. We can see we can see their emotions. We can there is that connection there that that I don't think you can find in the NFL. Even though the NFL I think is unquestionably probably America's biggest sport, but I think the NBA has that personal connection. And it also goes down to the fact that from the from since Michael Jordan uh, since Michael Jordan uh, retired, well before when he when he, when Michael Jordan started playing '84, the NBA really became all about individuals and. After, after the success of Michael Jordan and the fact that he won championships with the Chicago Bulls, the fact that the NBA was very, was very much okay with marketing a player as an individual, especially if their team won. So it's very, um, it, it's just, it's, it's a very, it's a very organic development um, with, 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 with the connection that NBA, the NBA fans have with their players because we see them and it's just become, just the fact of life with the NBA. We just, we expect to see Shaq or Kobe or now with Giannis. I mean, all these guys are just, they're front and center. It's, it's anticipated. I was going to say, it's kind of funny that we talk about Jordan, you know, this is kind of piggybacking off mm-hmm. how excited everyone was about the last dance and their final run. Were there, was there anything surprising that you learned about Jordan in those mid to late eighties when he was coming into the league? The fact that he was, he was very aware of, the attention that was put on him and he was very savvy about it. And I think he might be the first media savvy celebrity athlete that we have. Um, there's a great story uh, about um, that Scott Bedbury of Nike related to me um, where he was doing a commercial shoot with Michael. Um, this is in like the late 1990s. And Jordan had, uh, Jordan was filming a commercial in LA and it was kept top secret and no one knew about it, but word got out. So Jordan gets out of his chute, comes comes up, and it's a mob scene. So he's signing. So he so there's a crowd that's gathered. He stops, signs autographs. Five minutes pass. Ten minutes pass. Keeps signing. Jordan has to be back at the Bulls at a certain time. That's the agreement that Jordan, that Nike and uh, Jordan's agent David Falk uh, came to. So he kept signing and signing. Scott Beverly says, Mike, we got to go. Like we're, we're running, the clock is running. We have to go now. So Michael finishes signing, takes a step back, looks around for maybe 20, 30 seconds, goes back into the car with, with, uh, with Scott Bedbury. And um, Scott says like, why did you, what were you doing just there? What was going on? Who did you see? And Michael Jordan says, I think I'm quoting directly here. Anytime, anytime that there's a kid there, I want to make sure that he sees me. He knew what his impact was and he knew what his presence was and he knew how important that was. And I really do think that he might, that he's probably the first media savvy athlete um, in, 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 in modern day sports. Yeah. 
Uh, give, so given the game, uh, the NBA game has always been one about uh, what's next and being on the, on the edge and on, on the cusp of what is happening, what's going, you know, where, where we're going next. Uh, so where do you see the league going next? How do you think the league will look five years down the line? To me, it's impossible to say because the NBA has always been about change. Always. It's always been about, it's always been about capitalizing on what's new, on what is, what's going to be successful, what's going to appeal to, to customers. So to answer that question would be to, would be to answer what is, would be to answer what I'm going to have for breakfast in five years from now. I, I just don't know. Um, and, I, and that's deliberate. I think the, the NBA has always been about the cutting edge and it's always been about, about not being stodgy. Um, which is something that the NFL and baseball don't have for it. I think that's one reason why I think the NBA is only going to grow in popularity and grow in reach because the NBA has always had to work hard to get to where it is. And that's not going to stop now, especially with Adam Silver being a disciple of David Stern. That, that's not going to, that's not going to change anytime soon. Absolutely. Pete, what about yourself? You just finished up this book. Is there, is there anything in the pipeline for a second one or are you going to take some time off and enjoy this one? I would like to enjoy some time off, maybe in the new year. I do have some ideas for books. Some are related to sports, some are not. Um, I'm writing for a variety of publications to keep the, uh, the cash flow and the uh, writing flowing. But not, right now, um, you know, I'm going to take some time off, see what happens. And, uh, but, I, I, but I love writing a book. I hope to do it again, and we'll see what happens from there. We're excited about it. That's Pete Croato. He is the author of the upcoming book, From Hang Time to Prime Time, which comes out December 1st. Pete, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. That was dope. Well, we are going to continue our conversation with game four of the NBA Finals. Uh, the last minute of play, uh, AD hits a big three-point shot to put the Lakers up by nine, and LeBron lets out this epic, ah! You could tell he was really, really wanting it, really, really feeling it. Uh, so when a team goes up 3-1 or, or 3-0, you usually start to have this conversation about, you know, who is the MVP of the finals or who may be the MVP of the finals. So, Aaron, with that, uh, I know that uh, we still have a lot of basketball left to play, but what do you, you have any thoughts on that at this point? You know, you know that, that scream epitomizes the fact that LeBron can smell ring number four, right? Like it's in his grasp. You can see it before him. He's ready for it. But here's an interesting thing, Otto, and this is a really interesting thought. We're living in an unprecedented times. We've had an NBA season unlike any other. We've had an NBA playoffs that, you know, I'm comfortable saying we won't experience something like this for a very, very long time, most likely. And we've had an NBA finals that is played in a bubble with virtual fans in a finals that is unlike anything other. So if you've had all these elements that are so unique, why not do something at that level that's special and deserving of both those players? You know, we've talked a lot throughout the course of these NBA playoffs about the dynamic and the roles that AD and LeBron have played throughout this. You know, one night it's AD taking a big shot to send a game home. The other night it's LeBron picking up his teammate and, you know, and year 17 of being in the NBA and however many playoff runs that's included along the way. He's still that workhorse every single night. And the way those two guys have played off each other and how important they were to this basketball game, you know, you talked about at the top of the show, 
those were the two guys that were diving on the floor, getting extra possessions, grabbing loose balls, being there defensively every single possession. I would be in favor of co-MVP because I think that even if you give it to LeBron and you say, LeBron, this is your fourth title, you know, you've weathered another strong NBA storm, you're deserving of this, that you're still going to have a handful of people that say, well, what about everything that AD did during these playoffs? You know, and vice versa. Like you could even give the trophy to AD and you're still going to have everyone saying, well, LeBron is doing this in year 17. You give that trophy to both those guys, the only thing people are going to be upset about is the fact that it's the first time that it's ever happened and you're going to have all the historians saying, no, 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 it has to go to one person. Well, as you you? Point, well look, as you, as you point out, I mean, we could take history and throw it right out of the window. Um, if you're allowed to even open a window in the bubble, I don't know if you can, if you can, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it, these are, these are uncharted waters. And so I, like I have, have through, look, through the first four games, I have no problem with, with co-MVPs and I probably won't after game five uh, for the record. I still think it's going to go five, but um, you know, we, we, we will see what, how it goes down. But um, I mean, to this point, I have no problem with, uh, with them, whatever they do, they, they, cut it in half or they, you know, you, you take it on Mondays, I'll take it on Tuesdays or <laughs> I don't know how that works. Well, what, what's amazing is you look at their postseason numbers and they are eerily similar. You look at yep. their, their series numbers and they're eerily similar. So it's not just the fact that like both of them are playing well. It's the fact that they're so close <laughs> yeah, number yeah. wise yeah, in well, a lot of categories <laughs> that it's like, how do you even pick? Yeah, well, look, this is this is not a, a like a oh, let's give it one last to LeBron as a sympathy, or you know, let's let's kind of uh, you know acknowledge AD with a kind of participation trophy. I mean, this this is it's neither one of those. The both guys deserve it. I mean, you know, LeBron is is you know tied with three other guys named Magic, <laughs> Shaq, and, and Duncan, uh, and this would this would give him a fourth or a share of a fourth, and, and so at that point he would only tra- trail Jordan, and and it kind of feels like that would be right that would be like the basketball universe would be aligned if 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 he were to somehow get a fourth or a piece of a fourth um but yeah that's uh quick quick question is this the first time in a long time that lebron's really had someone that he can lean on in the finals you know he, he had Kyrie with those Cavs runs obviously but Kyrie was a much younger player and i don't think he trusted Kyrie the way that he trusts ad and then obviously with the heels, that was an entirely different situation. But, but I still wouldn't say that, you know, you felt like it was one and one A, right? Like with this situation, it feels like you can interchange those guys every night and it's going to be fine. Well, I mean, I mean, we can't forget, like Wade won a title, um, yeah. you know, practically on his own. And, and he was, you know, still, still in, his, in his prime and he wasn't kind of, uh, you know, what he, what he was doing. Um, you know, six, but, but, you know, he, he still was, um, you know, a hell of a, hell of a, a player. really good player, hell of a player. But I mean, but the thing about Anthony Davis is that, you know, his star is ascending and, you know, he clearly has um, a very unique skill set. Um, you know, a, a big man who can, who can handle the rock, like a point guard, um, you know, what he can do defensively as well as offensively taking, taking over games at either end. So in, in that respect with all with all due respect to D Wade, I mean, AB, AD, pardon me, is, is that kind of, you know, that, that rare player. So in, in that sense, I mean, I, I will say that, that, that yeah, I mean, AD is going to be that guy, but, but. It's, it's the first time in a LeBron contract where you feel like his running mate 
will surpass him by the end of LeBron's contract. Is that fair to say? Uh, At the back end of these two remaining years on LeBron's current deal with the Lakers, that his star might have diminished just a little bit to where AD is the superstar of that team? Uh, I mean, look, I, I, I would have, after 17 years in the league, I would have to think so. And if, and if not, LeBron's got to share the secret sauce and tell everybody what, <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> well, well you, you know, we're going to find out in Space Jam what that secret sauce is. Michael had it where, he, you know, he amped up the Toon Squad, and, you know, LeBron seems to have it where it still carries him through to this day. It's amazing, man. And tonight's game was a fun one to watch. And regardless, I'm excited about game five to see if the Heat have some kind of an answer. Yes, yes. Well, we will, we will see and we will talk about this all next week. So, uh, so with that, that is another edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. I want to thank our producers, the man in the chair, Scott Turkin, uh, along with Bruce Bernstein and our editor, Tom Phillips. Yeah, we appreciate them staying up late to do these shows with us. It's, it's our goal to bring you guys the best possible and timely content that we can. And, you know, we, we enjoy staying up and doing these. And so we hope you guys do as well. And we also hope that you're checking out the rest of our shows Monday through Friday here on Pure Hoops Media. Monday, as always, is the Mike Weiss Show. Tuesday, you can catch your college hoops fodder with the full court press with fans and Adams. Wednesday is where you get all your NBA news and nuggets as Otto and I each week bring you interviews. We bring you in-depth analysis about the NBA and what we like and what we didn't like from the previous week. Thursdays is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure. And we round out a week of basketball talk with a Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Hey, if you guys like what we're doing here on Pure Hoops Media and you like what you're hearing on the show's all that we ask is that you rate and subscribe on Apple. And you know what? If you see us on Twitter, hit that retweet button. We appreciate it. And everybody stay safe. COVID-19, not going anywhere. Social distance, wash your hands, wear a mask. Take care. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.